would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We are continuing in our study of this book that is not meant to be a secret. It is not meant to be hard to understand. It's in the name. It is to be revealed to us. We are to understand it and to be encouraged by it. And today we are looking at Revelation chapter 13. We finished chapter 12 last week. And we will begin where we left off. I'll read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we come before you and we ask for you to help us to understand your word. Open our eyes, open our understanding, fill us, fill us with the truth of your word. 
I pray, Father, that as you do that through the work of your Holy Spirit, even now, right here in our midst, that you would help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Help us to see the wonder of your gospel of grace in new and fresh ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in November, on November the 9th, actually, uh, this past November, uh, the organization that oversees uh, Major League Baseball here in the United States uh, came out with a pronouncement. And on that day, November 9th, 2019, the pronouncements was that they were beginning an investigation into some accusations against the Houston Astros baseball team. Uh, the Houston Astros baseball team had won the World Series in 2017, and the accusations that had come out was that they had cheated during the season. The accusation was that they had put a camera in the center field wall of their stadium that was able to see the signs between the pitcher and the catcher of the opposing teams that would come and play. And then a signal was sent from behind the center field wall to the offices and eventually to the dugout uh, via smartphones and smartwatches. And then the people in the dugout were told what the next pitch would be that the batter who was up at to bat was going to see. The people in the dugout would then give a sign to the batter up at the plate. It was either a whistle or a banging of a trash can with signals so they would know what the pitch was going to be and they could be ready to hit it. Well, that was back in November when the investigation began this past Monday on January the 13th. The commissioner of Major League Baseball announced that the investigation had been completed and that the Houston Astros were found guilty of the charges. They were fined $5 million. They were forced to forfeit their draft picks for the 2020 and 2021 seasons. And the general manager, Jeff Lunau, and their field manager, A.J. Hinch, were suspended by Major League Baseball for this season. The following day, the owner of the Astros, who had been exonerated in the whole controversy, fired both his general manager and his field manager, uh, and implicating them in uh, the uh, accusations. Uh, the general manager, who was just under the owner, uh, general manager Lou now, admitted that he knew what had been going on. He wasn't involved in the day-to-day -day activities of the actual lying and cheating, but he knew what was going on, and he gave his power, his authority, to his underlings, to his field manager and some of the assistant coaches, so that they could go out and wreak havoc against these teams that they were playing against. In a sense, the general manager, although he wasn't involved literally in the details, was standing on the sidelines and giving his power and authority so that, that these lies and the cheating could take place. It was really a horrible thing for the Astros organization, for the city of Houston, and for the entire Major League Baseball Association. There is something of an analogy of that situation happening in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we looked at chapter 12 last week and chapter 12 introduced this red dragon. 
We are told that the red dragon is Satan, the devil himself. That he has been defeated through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Christ child. And that the devil through his fighting with the archangel Michael in heaven was defeated and cast out of heaven down to the earth. And his attempts to devour the Christ child were failed. Uh, failed. And as a result, we read in chapter 12 that he was furious. And because he couldn't touch Jesus anymore, he decided he was going to go after Jesus' people, the church. We ended chapter 12 with this ominous statement that the beast or that the, the dragon, Jesus' Jesus's adversary, Satan, was standing on the sand of the sea. Something is about to happen. You can feel it. And chapter 13 tells us the rest of the story. Satan stands on the sea, the sand of the sea, and raises up these two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. He raises them up as his henchmen, as his helpers, as his representatives, as his assistants. And he gives them his power and his authority and their marching orders to go out and to wreak havoc against the people of God, the church. Satan is like that general manager of the Astros. He stands on the sidelines. He's shrewd and subtle. And sends out his henchmen, his assistants, to accomplish his purposes. But don't misunderstand. These two henchmen, these two beasts, are not ineffective. They are hideous. They are evil. They are powerful. And they produce fear. But what I want us to see today is not only who these two beasts represent... But also that for God's people this morning, there is real and true hope. That although these are scary beasts, if you are God's people this morning, you have no reason to fear. Let's look and see what uh, John sees here and what he tells us about these beasts. First of all, what is this beast of the sea? You get the description of it in verses 1 through 10. Uh, You will remember, as we talked earlier in our service, that John is drawing directly from Daniel chapter 7 here in his description of what he sees. Almost literally, in some ways, we get some of the exact same description. This first beast that rises out of the sea has ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems on its horns. That's what verse 1 tells us. Uh, Whatever this beast is, it is a picture of great power, of great authority. It is multifaceted. In many ways, it is mirroring, mirroring the description of the devil himself that we got in chapter 12. And we're told at the end of verse 1 that there are blasphemous names written on its head. Names that curse the one true God, names that steal God's authority and steal God's uh, pretending to be God himself. And then we read at the beginning of verse 2 that this, this beast that comes out of the water is like a leopard and has feet like a bear with mouth like a lion. It's the exact animals that were given to us in Daniel 7. Uh, There they were separate beasts, but it's almost as if John is saying they've all combined into this horrendous and horrific, fearful being. 
We see that in verse, the end of verse 2 that this, the dragon, Satan himself, gives his power, his throne, his great authority to the sea beast. And we go on in verse 3 to see that one of the heads of this beast had a mortal wound, but it had recovered. It seemed like it had been killed. It seemed like it had been put down. But as it were, it almost resurrected. It seemed to resurrect and come back to life and power. In verses 3 and 4, we are told that the people of the earth followed and worshipped the beast and the dragon. In verses 5 and 6, we're told that the beast had haughty and blasphemous things to say against God, against God's name, and against his people in heaven. And then in verses 7 and 8, we read that the beast is allowed to make war on the saints. He's given authority over those who dwell on the earth. And as we've talked about previously, that's a phrase that is in contrast to those who dwell in heaven. It's referring to those who are not believers in God, not God's people. Those, as it goes on in verses 7 and 8 to say, those who do not have their name written in the book of life. That's how it's described, this Hideous, horrific, evil being. So what did it mean for the first century Christians? This was a letter that was written to people, to Christians in Asia Minor in the first century. When they were reading it for the first time, what did this, what did this beast mean to them? When we look at uh, chapter 13, we think it looks sensational. It, it maybe, maybe even sounds like it's science fiction to us. But when the people who were receiving it for the first time in the first century received it, they would have known exactly what John was describing. They immediately would have had their minds brought back to Daniel chapter 7. Almost this exact language and description of these beasts. John is describing, as Daniel 7 gave us the interpretation of those beasts, John is describing an earthly evil kingdom and power and system that has as its goal the destruction of God's people, the suffering and the persecution of God's people. And in particular, the the first century Christians reading this would have known that Paul was referring to the Roman Empire in the first century. With emperors like Domitian and Nero who made it their life's calling to persecute the people of God. Those who would name the name of Jesus. This first beast are political powers and systems that arise and use their power and intimidation to persecute and oppress God's people. This first beast is a is a tool of Satan. One of his beasts used to bring suffering and difficulty and persecution to the Christians in the first century and beyond. So that's what it meant for the first century Christians. That's how they would have understood this first beast. But what about for us? Uh, 21st century Christians, the Roman Empire is no more. Well, just as this beast is described as having had a mortal wound, but has recovered, it's a picture to us that this beast is one that seems like it's defeated at a point in time, but then rises again to wreak havoc on the people of God. Yes, it certainly referred to Nero and the Roman Empire in the first several centuries after Jesus. But it refers to other kingdoms and powers, systems that have been raised up and who fought against the people of God. We think of General Mao in communist China. We think of Hitler in Nazi Germany. We think of Lenin and Stalin in the Soviet Union. 
any and every political kingdom and power and system that opposes God and persecutes God's people is a symbol of this first beast of the sea. It could be any person or government or power or system that encourages or requires the people of God to compromise the truth of God's word. In the first century, the Roman Empire required Christians to compromise the truth of God's word in order to live and have successful lives and businesses and even so that they wouldn't be killed. So for us as 21st century Christians, it could be any structure or system or government that tells us to compromise the word of God. It could be a government or organization that says that not only is it acceptable, but here's how we can make available the killing of unborn life. It could be any institution that would encourage people to lie and to cheat and to steal in order to get ahead. Uh, think about the Houston Astros organization. They, they were encouraging people, the players, to lie, to cheat, to steal. Why? Because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to win the World Series. What is it in our lives? What are the systems in our lives? What are the, the people in our lives? What are the, the, the governing officials in our lives that encourage us that you need to lie, you need to steal, you need to cheat, or you're going to be left behind? You won't be successful. You won't be liked. This is the first beast, the beast of the sea. It's one of Satan's tools. It's one of his representatives. It's used to bring trouble and trials and suffering to God's people. But what is the second beast? The second beast is described to us in verses 11 through 18. And notice, it's not nearly as horrifying and ugly as the first beast. It doesn't seem as harmful. It doesn't seem as offensive. And in fact, it seems almost like a pet. It's described in verse 11 as like a lamb with two horns. That's not scary. Some of you may actually have pet lambs. But don't be fooled. We read at the end of verse 11 that this one that looks like a lamb speaks like a dragon. It's one with words of great power and persuasion, although perhaps subtly. It's able to perform great signs, even calling down fire from heaven, we read in verse 13. And it uses those signs and miracles to deceive unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth, we read in verse 14. It even gets people to create false images, false idols, and it uses those to worship the first beast, we're told in verses 12 and 15. And there at the end of the passage, we read that it causes all unbelievers to have the mark of the beast on their hand or their forehead. We'll come back to that in just a minute. This is the description of this second beast. Now, when the first century Christians were reading this for the first time, what would they have thought of? Again, John's readers would not have wondered what he was describing. They would have known full well what he was describing. Look at the, the, the description of this, this beast. The second beast is very religious in nature. And in fact... Later in chapter 16 and 19 and 20, this second beast is actually described as a false prophet. One that proclaims a false gospel. 
the Christians in the first century that were reading this would have understood that John was referring to the requirement of the people of the first century to worship the emperor of the Roman Empire. They had to give their allegiance to him. They had to give their devotion to him. They had to worship the emperor as if he was God himself. And if they failed to do that, their businesses would be hindered. Their life circumstances would be hard. And perhaps they could even be executed. This second beast is any false religion that turns people away from the true gospel. God's gospel of grace. So what does it mean for us here in the 21st century? We're not being asked to worship a Roman emperor. The beast for us is anything that would undermine biblical Christianity and the truth, the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be any false religion. It could be Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism or New Age spirituality. But it could also be anything that is teaching us to believe a false gospel. That our acceptance before God, that our, that our salvation is not by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. It could be anything that would teach us that the true religion and salvation is not only through Christ. Or we could say it this way, it's anything that would teach us to put the imperative before the indicative. We've talked about that before in recent sermon, uh, sermon uh, series that we're doing. The indicative, that which is a statement of truth. Uh, for the Christian, the indicative is, you are a child of God because of what Christ Jesus has done for you and applied to you. It is the indicative, it is a statement of fact. It's nothing that you've done, it's something that has been done for you and to you. And as a result, then, we live out the imperative. We live out the commands. We are to live like who we are. And whenever we switch the imperative, the indicative, we get something that is not Christianity. When we say you must do X in order to be accepted in God's sight, then we are destroying and undercutting God's grace and mercy to us. That's what the second beast does. He puts those little... Lies into your head. He, he causes you to think that your Father in Heaven can't love you because you're not holy enough. Because you gave in to that sin once again. The Gospel says that you are holy and righteous and accepted because of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, His death, His resurrection and ascension. The Bible also tells us we should go out and live like who we are. But the indicative comes before the imperative. That's what the second beast does. Tells us those lies. And you start to see how powerful, how persuasive and subtle the second beast is. Now what about the mark? Here we read in verses 16 through 18. What is this mark of the beast? There's lots of speculation, lots of ideas, lots of fears 
Uh, perhaps like me when growing up, maybe you heard some of those things uh, that at some point in the future that uh, everybody was going to have to get a tattoo on their hand or on their forehead. Uh, maybe you have a barcode uh, that you can't see under normal light that uh, would only be read by special readers or maybe a microchip that would be put underneath your skin uh, that uh, you wouldn't be able to buy or sell things and go to Walmart or Hy-Vee and buy things unless you, you had these things that were given to you by, uh, by the evil one. But as with everything else that's happening in chapter 13, there's, there's symbolism happening here. And we go back to chapter 7 and we remember the, the picture that we were given there of God's people having God's seal put on them. And even as we see in chapter 14, this contrast with uh, that we're going to look at more next week, we see this contrast of God's people who have God's name, who are God's name that is written on their foreheads. It's not speaking about a literal uh, lettering on your forehead or on your hand, but it's a symbolic picture. It's a sign of ownership. It shows who you belong to. It shows who your allegiance to. So those who have the mark of the beast in verse 17 are those who belong to the beast. Those who belong to the dragon. Those who follow him and give allegiance to him. And the same idea is in verse 18 with this number of the beast. Lots of speculation and attempts to come up with a specific person, a specific name, based on the numbers, uh, connecting it with the Greek and Hebrew alphabet. But I think it's probably best to see the number as symbolic as well. We've talked about the number seven, how significant that number is in Revelation and in Scripture. It is the number of absolute and complete perfection and goodness. So the number six is one less. One less than the perfect number seven. And with three sixes is given to us for emphasis. Seven, seven, seven would be the absolute, complete perfection and goodness of God. And six, six, six perfectly misses that mark. It always fails, or as one commentator said, it is the completeness of sinful incompleteness. This is the second beast, the beast of the land. It is false religion, it is the denial of the gospel of grace. And both of these beasts are alive and well in the first century and now and until Jesus returns. And so like Daniel in chapter 7 of his book, perhaps we might feel anxious, might feel terrified and discouraged and filled with fear. Who can stand against these beasts? But notice John fills us with the truth that if you're in Christ this morning, there's no reason for you to fear. The first reason for that is there is a limit on this counterfeit trinity. There are commentators that point out the fact that this dragon, Satan, and his two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, form an almost unholy counterfeit trinity, mimicking the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the dragon... Satan himself giving his authority to the beast of the sea. The beast of the sea acts like a king and a ruler with crowns and diadems, blasphemous names on his heads. And he almost seems as if to have been resurrected from his mortal wound. The beast of the land, almost like a fake counterfeit Holy Spirit, points people to the beast of the sea to worship it, uses breath of life to bring idols to life, 
A false prophet and priest directing worship to a false god. It's almost this picture of a counterfeit, fake trinity. But that's part of the reason why this is such an encouraging passage. Because it is counterfeit. It is not true. It's only mimicking the one true God in three persons. And notice that it's limited as well. Limited by God's control. Look again at verse 7 of chapter 13. This first beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. These beasts have no power. They have no control in and of themselves. They are given that power and control. They are on a leash. They're not powerful in themselves. But the God, the one true God, the Lord God Almighty is the one who is in control and the one who is in power. And they are limited by God's power and authority. Not only limited by God's control and power, but notice in verse 5, they are limited by God's timing. We're told that they are allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now we've talked about that number over the last several weeks. That number 42 shows up in a couple different ways. It shows up as 42 months, as 1,260 days, or as three, three and a half years. And that time period is the same time period, and it's used symbolically throughout Revelation and other places in the Scripture to describe the time between the advents of Jesus, between His first coming and His second coming. So what we're being told here is that the freedom and the power and the authority of the dragon and the beasts is limited by God's timing. Even as we read in chapter 12, verse 12, Satan knows that his time is short. So the fact that this unholy trinity is counterfeit, it is fake, it is a false trinity that is limited by God's control and timing helps us as God's people not to have fear. God is in control, God is at work, and in the end he wins. A second reason why God's people should be filled not with fear but with hope we get in verses 1 through 3 of, verse, of chapter 14. Now we're going to look at this more next week. But it's important to see the contrast to chapter 13. And look at what John says in 14 verse 1. I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We've talked about that number representing the people of God. So here is the Lamb... And all of his people that have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of the loud thunder. The voice I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. In contrast to the people that dwell on the earth, the unbelievers whose name are not written in the book of life, here we have the picture of God's people safe and secure with God's name, with the Lamb, singing the new song that only the redeemed people of God know how to sing. It's this picture of when someone who has their heart regenerated and puts their faith in Christ, they are united to Jesus. And when they are united to Jesus, they are securely and eternally adopted into God's family. 
They are given the status of being a child of God. And that status can never be taken away. It can never be stolen by any dragon or beast. We may go through life suffering and being persecuted and having difficult circumstances, but it's only temporary. The accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ has been defeated. He has been conquered by the blood of the Lamb, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian here this morning, then you are safe and secure in Christ because of his redeeming work on the cross that is finished and completed. His steadfast and faithful love to you will never waver and it can never be defeated. So there's nothing for you to fear this morning, beloved believers in Christ, in the face of these beasts or even the dragon himself. That's the reason why John gets this call at the end of verse 10. A call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Up in verse 10, we read that if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Our calling as God's people here in this place may involve persecution. It may involve difficulty in this life. It may even involve the call for us to give our lives for the cause of Christ. But what we are told is it's temporary. That's the worst that could happen to us. And then paradise. That's why John says that we are to be people who endure and have faith. Those words imply hard work, endurance, faith. They're active, active words of belief and faith. And just as Paul reminded the Christians in Ephesus, God has provided us with tools. He has provided us with armor so that we can endure in the faith. I won't read it to you now, but perhaps this afternoon you can go to Ephesians chapter 6 and you can read about that wonderful armor that God gives to his people. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and prayer. These are the things that God gives us that we might endure and persevere and have faith until the end. I heard a story this past week from a friend of mine who heard uh, the late R.C. Sproul talk about a time when he was in graduate school in the 1960s. Sproul was a grad student at the Free University of Amsterdam in the late, uh, the mid to late 1960s. And uh, Sproul was a believer in Christ at that point, but almost all of his professors were unbelievers. Some of them were even hostile to the Christian faith and to the Bible being God's word. They would regularly make fun of R.C. Sproul and others uh, who believed that the Bible was God's word. Uh, They would be belittled for their faith. They would be ridiculed because they actually believed that the word of God was true. And Sproul says that most of his uh, said most of his fellow students went right along with it, but not Sproul. Some of you know his story. You know that he came to faith as a young man. He was given a very sharp, logical mind by the Lord. He was uh, able to see errors of unbelievers, of untruth, and able to poke holes in arguments against God or Christianity or the Bible. And when his professors at the university argued against Christianity and argued against the truth of the Bible, Sproul would argue back with them in class. 
He would point out the errors in their arguments. He would show their logical inconsistencies. And it would drive his professors crazy. He was telling the story, he told a story about one day when he was in a particular heated argument with one of his professors about some of these things. And the professor literally said to him, let's take this outside. They went outside and continued to argue. And eventually the professor got so frustrated with Sproul that he grabbed him by the collar and he began to shake him back and forth. And he said to him, why won't you let go of this gospel? Sproul was going back and forth and he gasped and tried to catch his breath and he said, because the gospel is my life. Who are the people that the dragon and his two beasts will never overcome? Who will never destroy? Who will never defeat? Who are the people that will conquer the dragon and these beasts? It is those who believe the gospel of grace. It is those who understand the gospel of the Lamb of God who shed His blood on the cross for their behalf. It is those who have been redeemed whose names are written in the book of life. It is those who worship the one true Lord God Almighty who dedicate their lives to loving and serving Him. It is those who put their faith firmly in Christ and use all of the means of grace that God gives them so that they might endure and persevere to the end. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you have nothing to fear. Do not fear these beasts. Instead, be filled with hope and strength. Pray to the Lord that He will give you what you need that you might endure and persevere to the end. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian then you need to take heed of what Revelation 13 says. These beasts, these beasts of the dragon are out to get you. And apart from Christ, apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no protection for you. There is no security. They will be allowed to rule over you and to put you in their service. So today, put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and believe The gospel of grace is your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to believe that it is true, especially in those moments when we are prone to doubt. When so much around us seems to make these beasts so loud, so big, so all-encompassing in our world. Remind us of the truth and the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.